0: John chapter 2 is where we're going to be. We've been in John chapter 2 for a few, a couple months now. And uh, finally out of chapter 1. There was a lot in chapter 1 to go through. And we're in chapter 2 and I'm excited about this because it kind of, um, it, it, be, it marks the beginning of the, the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And uh, we, we'll look today at his very first public miracle in John 2. So let's stand as, uh, on, right as, you've, as you're getting settled, I'm going to make you stand one more time. Uh, John chapter 2, and we'll read the first uh, 11 verses of this chapter and then get into the preaching. Our family is glad to be back. We were gone last week, uh, went out to California to visit my wife's folks uh, for the holidays, and uh, we're glad to be back. There's no place like home. We did go through Kansas, so I came back saying there's no place like home, um, and uh, we're grateful Uh, If you say, why did you go through Kansas? It's a long story. I'll tell you later. Um, And uh, it was not a navigational error. By the way, men, right? It's never a navigational error. Um, There are only navigational deliberate appointments that you decide to do, but never an error because we have a built-in GPS. Okay. It's not in my notes, definitely. So John chapter two, verse one, it says, in the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto them, they have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews... ...containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water... ...and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, draw out now... ...and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine... ...and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew... ...the governor of the feast called the bridegroom... ...and saith unto him... Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Our title this morning is When Jesus is Working. When Jesus is working. See, when we face a problem, we tend to tackle it ourselves, don't we? We tend to think, I have the answers, I have the solutions, I can do this on my own. When really, in just a moment, we could turn to the one who has the answers. And when he starts working, it, it doesn't always look like we think it will. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you think I've got to figure this out. I'm dealing with this problem. I've got to make it happen. And then you finally give it to the Lord and think, why didn't I do this a long time ago? Um, And and sometimes we we take upon ourselves more than we should. And part of the reason is we think he's not concerned with this small of a problem. He's a great big God. But he's concerned with. The smallest problems we face true. I just want to remind you today you might serve a big God but there's no problem too small for him to care about let's let's ask the Lord to help us to focus on that this morning when Jesus is working Father we love you we need you we ask for your help we pray that you bless the reading of your word and meet with us that your Holy Spirit would illuminate this passage so that we can walk away with application and transformation we love you in Jesus' name we pray these things, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Obviously this is the, uh, the first Sunday of the new year. I'm excited about 2024 and what's coming in 2024 and the new possibilities, the new renewed excitement and if, if you're like me, you, have, you start to think about all the things you want to do different and the things that you want to do better and part of the Christian new year ought to every year be a renewed commitment to the word of God. Now, that we say, yeah, last year there were times where it kind of went up and down, but this year I want I to really do better at being in God's word. I think that's a natural resolution, if you will, for the Christian and one that ought to be a part of our lives all the time. And, and the first week is so important. This is the week where you really build some momentum or you've already been defeated and you're thinking, I'm done already in the first week. Hopefully, that hasn't happened to you. That you've decided this year is going to be different. I'm going to be faithful. Um, I've even picked up a Bible reading journal, which is something many of you got this year to help stay on track. Um, but one of the things that's a danger in reading our Bibles and getting a new, com- renewed commitment to our Bibles is that we turn our Bible reading into a checklist. I don't know if you've ever done this before, I, I certainly have. Where I start to read, I, got, I say, I've got to get done with this for the day. I, I try to get done a certain number of times during the year, get through my Bible. And if I don't read, if I'm not faithful, if I don't finish, then I know I'm way behind. And now I'm not going to get done like I want. And so I just, I, I can get to the habit of reading and then checking it off the list and thinking that was good enough. Sure. Or I, I, sometimes I'll listen and, and not pay close attention of thinking about other things but, but I w- just want to remind you, and, and I'll connect this, but, but when we read our Bibles, we don't read our Bibles to check off a list. And we don't read our Bibles to keep ourselves busy. We don't read our Bibles to have bragging rights. We don't read our Bibles to build some kind of a rel- religious r- resume. No, when you read your Bible, when you open God's Word, and like we're doing this morning, when we open God's Word together, we are opening it so that we can know the Lord more closely so that we can have a closer walk with God so that we can learn more about him. Every page should point us to God. Every chapter has something new that it teaches us about the Lord. Every time that we turn the page, the purpose is to know Jesus Christ. Don't lose sight of that. And and the reason I bring that up today is because that's actually John's purpose for writing this gospel. In John chapter 20, John said... And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. John says the reason I wrote this book was to point you to Jesus Christ. The reason he wrote these words, the reason John penned this gospel was to point people to Jesus so that we can know him. And we can know who he is. And in knowing who he is and believing who he is... ...have eternal life through his name. This gospel was written so we can know Jesus. John's method of convincing readers about the identity of Christ... ...that he is deity... ...was to write about the miracles that he performed. And I think that's a a very natural thing to do. If I'm going to try to convince you... ...that I'm a superhero with superpowers... ...then I need to probably give you um, some examples of the times... ...that I used my superpower abilities. I mean, and I, it's a long list. I'm not going to get into that this morning. Um, but I could. No, no. Uh, gee, I was going to talk about navigation again... ...but I'm just not going to, okay. No, that's what John decided. He said, if I'm going to prove the deity of Jesus Christ... ...if I'm going to let people know this is Jesus Christ... He, ...he's the Messiah... He's the son of God. If I want to convince them of that, then I need to give them some evidence. And the evidence that he uses are miracles. He calls them signs. And these signs were not pointing to themselves. These signs were pointing to something greater than themselves. They were pointing to the deity of Jesus Christ. And he did so many signs. Actually, in John chapter 21, it says there were so many of these miracles that he could fill books and books about uh, with all the miracles that Jesus did, but rather than fill books, because John knew he didn't have that much, maybe that much time, or maybe he wasn't required to, to use that much through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John specifically chose seven signs that clearly point to the identity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And as we read these signs, as we go through the, the, the book, this, this gospel... ...as we go through these, we read the signs, we see that he has power... ...we know he is the Christ, we're convinced that he's the Son of God... ...then the point that John makes is that we would believe on him as the Son of God... ...and in believing on him, that we would have eternal life. Listen, if you want eternal life, then you must believe that Jesus is the Christ... ...that he is the son of God... ...and then place your faith in him alone for salvation. Have you done that? Do you know that you're saved? Do you know that if you died today... ...that you'd spend eternity with God... ...in heaven forever? And you say, I don't know how anyone could know that. I was raised and taught to believe... ...that you cannot know that for sure... Well, you can say that you were raised that way. It doesn't make it true because the Bible says that you can know 100% for sure that you have eternal life. If you have Jesus, the Bible says you have life. And this morning, if you've come to this church this morning seeking something, searching for something, and you don't know that you have eternal life, it is as simple as, number one, acknowledging that you are a sinner, that you've committed sin before God, and you stand guilty before him. And that second, that the wages of your sin is death. And you deserve to be separated from God forever in a plural place called hell. You have to believe those two things. But third, you also have to believe that God loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son... That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You can know for sure that you're on your way to heaven this morning. If you acknowledge your sin and cry out to Jesus Christ in faith. And say I cannot save myself. You are the only way to heaven. I place my trust in the payment of your son on the cross. And I make that decision today. You can do that this morning. Before you leave this building you can be saved. And if you, miss, if you miss every other point, every other detail of the message, but you get that one, that's the one John wanted you to get. Right. Yeah. So I start the message by reminding you the purpose is that you look to Jesus. Because there are plenty of stories as we go through accounts like this, and we have questions. We have questions like, uh, you know, well, whose wedding was it? You know, that's, a, that's an important question. Well, you know, it must not matter because John didn't tell us. Who was the bride? We don't know. John didn't tell us. So it must not matter. Who was the groom? We don't know. John didn't tell us. So guess what? It probably doesn't matter. Another question. Was it alcoholic wine? It's a big deal. People talk about it. Well, it must not be that important because he doesn't tell us. We'll talk about that a little bit as well. But that's not really the point of the text. The point of the text was not, what's their connection to Jesus? Why, why was he invited? Why was his, his disciples invited to this wedding? We, we don't know. They're not bad questions. They're just not the point today. And today I want to point to Jesus. I simply want to look at this text and find out some things about Jesus. How Jesus works when he's given the opportunity. Verse 1 it says, In the third day there was a marriage in Cain of Galilee... And the mother of Jesus was there. We don't know a lot about this wedding. We, and, and we do know this takes place two days after Jesus met Philip and Nathanael in chapter 1, verse 43. Because it says the third day. So the third day from today would be Tuesday, month, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. So you could, you and I might say, uh, two days later, Jesus and his disciples got an invitation to a wedding. And Mary was there. So uh, one of the first things, what I I like about this this, uh, passage or this section from John is we get a glimpse into the weekly life of Jesus Christ. His first week of public ministry, he goes to a wedding and that either sounds enjoyable or it sounds like a long afternoon depending on your gender likely. He goes to a wedding. Jesus and his disciples get invited and And they go to this wedding in Canaan. It's just a few hours north of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And we don't know whose wedding it was. But it's likely a family friend of Mary... I, I think it might be a, maybe she's friends with the groom's family based on her concern about the fact that they ran out of wine here in just a little bit. So Jesus and his five disciples, which would be John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. Nathaniel is also known as Bartholomew And the rest of the gospel. These five, I mean, isn't that just like six guys just to go to a wedding together? <laughs> yeah, That's what you do, right, guys? You get together, you go to a wedding now, now listen, if you don't like weddings right today, you really would not have liked weddings back then. They had three stages. The first stage was betrothal, which took place about a year before the wedding. It would have been like what we imagine engagement to be. Um, but it was considered much more serious then. Engagement engagement today is almost like it's a casual uh, entering into some kind of a promise. And it's not a big deal if something gets broken uh, or if it gets called off. Well, that's not the way it was back then. The betrothal was was to be entered very seriously. It was a commitment to marriage. And the only justification for breaking it off uh, back then was for the allowance of unfaithfulness... On one part, uh, one one person or the other, and even that was given as simply as an allowance for the hardness of their hearts from Moses in the law. The betrothal was very serious. We don't take necessarily we don't take it as seriously as they would have. Well, today we don't necessarily take marriage as seriously as they would have taken betrothal in those days. The betrothal itself was considered a binding a binding covenant before God. It was no small thing. That's why Joseph himself, when Mary came up pregnant with the Holy Spirit, Joseph struggled. He wanted to put her away um, because of uh, unfaithfulness until the angel came along and explained what was going on. This was a very serious thing. The idea of divorce came primarily from the betrothal period, whether you would break off the period or not, again, a period of about one year. The second stage of the Jewish wedding would have been the procession. This is when the groom and all of his friends would go to the the home of the bride and they would then joyously lead the bride and all of her friends away from her home back to the groom's house where the ceremony would take place. And that leads to then the third stage of the Jewish wedding which was the the ceremony. That was what's taking place right here in John chapter 2. It's a wedding feast. It could last for as long as a week. I mean, weddings were huge social events. Can you imagine a week-long wedding? I mean, we have 30-minute weddings, and it's full of drama. I mean, can you imagine the bridezillas that, sh- that show up with a week-long wedding? I don't know. A week-long celebration? I want, what, but think about this. A week-long celebration, the groom's family was on the hook to host people for a week. They're going to feed people for a week. They're going to give them something to drink. They're going to take care of their needs. They're hosting a, a a celebration for a week. And so running out of provisions at a wedding would have been a serious embarrassment for the family. It was such a big deal, actually, that if you read about this, then you can find out the family could actually be fined if they ran out of provisions. They could actually be taken to court, if they ran out of provisions at a wedding feast. This is not a small thing. I mean, I, I can't imagine suing you if you run out of those little wedding mints. You know, those things are good. I mean, come on. No, that's the context that we're, that, we're, that we're in today. They're at a wedding and it's a big social event. It's an important moment for the bride and groom. And the groom's family has run out of provisions and rather than focus on the details, I want us to look at things about Jesus Christ. The first thing that I can see about Jesus Christ is when he's given an opportunity to work, first he gives special attention to the needs of people. He gives special attention to the needs of people. They'd run out of wine, and this is a problem for the groom. And, and, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but the question about the wine does arise... Was it alcoholic, was it not? Well, the Greek word for wine here is oinos, and and it's a generic term. It was used for anything processed from a grape. So it could be grape uh, juice, it could be grape jelly, it could be be alcoholic wine, it could be grape skins, it could be anything processed from a grape, any stage or any form of a grape. It's a very generic term, like cider, or something like that. It could just as easily have been grape juice as it was anything else. And even then, it wouldn't have been nearly the same alcohol content, even if it was alcoholic, it wouldn't have been alcoholic content to the point that they were drinking to be drunk. They would have had to drink a lot of wine to get drunk based on the dilution level of what was used back then wine as a purifying agent. I mean, finding good drinkable water was not an easy thing to do. And they would use wine to purify water. They would boil it together. It would, it would make the water drinkable, which was important back then. So I, I use that to say, even if it was alcoholic, it would have been minute and not for the purpose of getting drunk. This would not have looked like a wedding celebration in our culture today. One thing we do know is very clear is that drunkenness itself is unbiblical and sinful. And if Jesus is consistent with his father and with scripture, which he is, there is absolutely no way he was giving them license to get drunk at this wedding. Right. And that's one of those details that we get caught up in and, 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 and it's not the point of the passage. The point of this message first is that we learn something about Jesus Christ. And here's what we learn when he's given the opportunity to work, he proves that he cares about people. He's not, you know, we we think, well, he's just this great big God and he's aloof up there and he's not really paying attention and he's spun the world like a top and he's just letting our problems, letting us deal with our own problems and he's not really concerned about us. No, he's concerned about something as simple and trivial as not having enough of the good drink at a wedding feast. And when Mary says they have no wine, it's a simple request for help. Uh, We don't know if she had seen Jesus do miracles. We don't know if she knew what he was capable of. But she knew who he was. She knew what he could do if he is who he says he is. And she says, they have no wine. Verse 4, Jesus saith unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And when he says woman, he is not being disrespectful or inappropriate. This was a term that would have been uh, endearing in that time. It would not have been something that people would have uh, been taken aback by, Uh, especially we know it's Jesus Christ. He would not have dishonored his mother because the Bible says, Honor thy father and mother. So he's not using a disrespectful term when he says mother or when he says woman. Uh, I believe it's in some ways he's making a transition because he doesn't call her mother, he says woman. What have I to do with thee? And the idea of what do I have had to do with thee literally means what is this to me and you? Like why would you get me involved in something like this? I mean, I, they, I mean what's the point of getting me involved? Jesus is bringing up an important, important point for her in that he says there's been a transition being made. There's been a transition here in that, yes, I'm still your son... But understand that my business is now about my father's business. And yes, I'm still your son. And I still love you and I still respect you. But there's something bigger coming for me. my And, and things have changed for me. And my primary role and primary responsibility is to my heavenly father. You say, well, what about Joseph? Well, that's another question that comes up. Where is Joseph? There are many that believe Joseph was likely passed away at this point because he's not mentioned anywhere else. But again, that's not the point of the passage. The point is Jesus is saying that my hour is not yet come. I have bigger things to do. And my job, my role now, I am focused on the hour of my crucifixion. And everything I do from here until then needs to be focused on that. That's my task. I will only do what will appropriately lead me to that moment in time. And if the Father gives me license, then I'll take care of it. If not, that's my job. That's my goal. That's my purpose. And you say, well, that seems a little bit harsh, but it's not. Because he was just making sure Mary knew his priority was God's plan for his life. He has a higher purpose now. We might assume that means Jesus then is above the trivial things. I mean, think about it. If if his goal is the crucifixion, mine hour's not yet come. If that's what he's looking to, then if you and I had a big responsibility like that, and we knew something that big was coming in our lives, we might say, "I don't have time for this. I don't have time to stop and I mean, just they ran out of grape juice. So big deal." Um, drink water but we find out that even though jesus christ is all about his father's business it doesn't mean that he's too big for the trivial matters in the lives of people look at verse five his mother saith unto the servants whatsoever he saith unto you do it so he gave her some kind of an indication that he that that he was going to do something here and understand we know jesus came to die his business was his father's will he came to provide salvation for mankind but along the way he met lots of needs he cared about people and I just want to tell you this morning if you don't hear anything else maybe this is the point you need to hear there's no matter in your life too small for Jesus to care about don't be afraid to pray about the small things Uh, Jesus cares about them don't assume that just because he's got bigger plans and a bigger purpose that he's too busy for that uh, that doctor's appointment that you have next week don't assume that just because he's a great big God and he's got big things ahead that that he doesn't care about that conversation that tough conversation that you have to have. Just because he's a great big God, it doesn't mean he's above that detail in your life that you're worried about. No, he's not. Jesus was all God, but he was all man. He was 100% God and 100% man, which means this. He understands our infirmities, like Hebrew says. He knows the the situations we're dealing with. He knows the troubles we feel. He knows your difficulties. He knows the path that you're walking on. He was born as a man. He lived on earth. He had emotions like you and I. He felt physical pain. He felt hunger. He became thirsty. He knew what it was like to be rejected. He'd been left alone, which means this, that there's nothing too small in your life for Jesus to care about. He could have dismissed this request, but he didn't. See, when Jesus is working, he gives attention to the smallest needs in our lives. Second, when Jesus is working, number two, he uses ordinary instruments to accomplish his will. He uses ordinary instruments. I'm sorry, I can't help but get happy when I read about what he uses to accomplish this miracle, Verse 6, and there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast and they bear it. Okay, so think about what he uses here. Uh, he, they need something to drink. They've got these big stone pots, six of these big stone pots. And these stone pots would have been used um, to help them keep the law. They would, have been, they would have had water in them. They would draw water from a well. And they would use these pots to wash their hands before and after they eat. So, they, so in many ways, these were a connection to the law. And, and Jesus says, I want you to fill those up. And, ...and fill them up to the brim, he says, to the servants. So, so far, he's talking to servants. These were household employees. Uh, he's using water pots, which were made of stone. They, were, they used to be dirt. Now they're hardened as stone. And, and, and they've been uh, placed under heat to, to cure and to, to be sealed. And so there's water in them. He's using clay pots. He's using servants. And he says, now go to the well that you always draw from... ...and get water from the same well that you always draw from. Has he done anything supernatural to this point? No, he's using servants. He's using water pots. And he's using water that this family, these folks... ...would have been very familiar with wherever the well was. And you say, well, these little water pots... ...well, a firkin, there were two or three firkins apiece. A firkin would have been about nine gallons. So you're, you're talking about big pots. These six jars would have held anywhere... ...between 120 to 180 gallons of water total. This was a lot of water. And as impressive as this was... ...Jesus uses ordinary items... ...to do the miracle. I mean, think about this. This is the great I am. He could have used any means he wanted to. He could have just been like... ...and, and wine would have poured down from heaven... ...and filled their cups... He could have done anything he wanted, but he used ordinary items. He used ordinary people. He he picked stone pots. He picked the water they were used to. Listen, God wants to use the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. You don't have to be talented. You don't have to come from a long line of super Christians. You don't have to be the smartest. You don't have to be the most confident. You simply have to be available because that's all they were. They were simply available. These servants were available. The pots were available. The water was there. And the great I am delights in using common vessels to accomplish his purposes. Amen. Remember this account tells us something about Jesus. And here it is. God wants to use you. He has a plan for your life. See and, and, and so I think about a local church. This church isn't comprised of, of uber talented people. We have plenty of talent here. But really, I think what sets us apart it's full, is this is a church full of people who simply make themselves available. And the more available we are, the more God can do through us. Listen, God wants to make an eternal difference in your life. And you say, well, here's my problem. I have no wine or, you know, I, I'm not talented or I'm not confident or I don't have boldness or I don't know how to speak to people or I don't have the intelligence I need. I don't know the Bible like I need. I don't have this. And, and you're so focused on what you don't have. I don't have wine that you forget you're talking to the son of God. Sure. And it doesn't really matter what you can't do. It doesn't really matter what you don't have because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Amen. There's nothing that you ask him to do that he doesn't have the resources to do. Now listen, this is not a name it, claim it. I'm not saying anything you pray, just ask for it today and it'll be in your bank account by the time we get out. No, I. but what I am saying is stop focusing on what you don't have and recognize that the great I am has everything you need and your problem may seem big and it may be overwhelming and you don't know how to fix it, but you serve somebody that can and it doesn't mean he wants you just to sit back and let him take care of it. He may have some things he wants you to do, be willing to do them. And as you do them, you find out that he can answer every problem that you have. He has the solutions for By the way, verse 7 says they filled them up to the brim. (laughs) If God's going to work, don't settle for him to just do some of it. You say, well, I I really need God to answer this request in my life. I really need him to come through. And you fill your water pot halfway. No, if he is God and he is, fill that water pot to the brim. In other words, do everything you can because he blesses us according to our measure of faith. He blesses us according to our measure of obedience. And we have a lot of Christians that are like half-filled water pots. You know, I believe God can do something. I believe he can fix this problem in my life. So I'm going to fill this water pot halfway. No, fill it to the brim. I love the fact that these servants had faith. They said, if he's going to do something, I want him to do everything he can do. I don't want what he can do to be limited by my lack of faith. Put him to the test. Believe that he can do something great. See, when Jesus is working, we find out he cares about the smallest needs in our lives. When Jesus is working, he uses ordinary vessels. And when Jesus is working, third, he does things contrary to human methods. He does things in ways we don't predict. Look at verse 9. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine... And knew not whence it was, but the servant which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him. Said unto him, every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. You know, you want to make a good impression. You put your best product out there first. The highest quality out there first. He says, and when men have, have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. See, the person overseeing the feast, he calls the groom and he says, you know, most people go from superior to inferior. They want to make a good impression up front, but you've done the opposite. This, this drink, this wine is higher quality than what you were serving before. Most weddings start with the best product and introduce the inferior product as time goes on. But listen, not, that's not the way Jesus works. And this is a picture, of the picture of the way of man, though, is that things get worse. The longer mankind has control over something, the worse things tend to get. When Jesus isn't working, culture gets worse. That's why I don't buy into something like evolution. Because evolution says, you know, things get better, things become more ordered. They go from chaos to order. Show me how that's working in our culture. Things aren't getting better. Things are getting worse and worse and worse. And as the further we remove God from the middle of our lives, the worse things get. Marriages start out well, but without Jesus Christ, they end up broken. Lives end out great, or start out great, but then sin takes control and destroys everything it touches. That's the direction we take when we're the ones in charge. Mankind as a whole typically leaves things worse than we find them. that's not how Jesus works see the longer he's involved the better things get my my wife and I will have been married 23 years this year this summer you know my marriage is better now than it's ever been my wife did not say amen and that's scary (laughs) why well it's not because of me no it's because we have chosen to keep God right in the middle of our marriage And it just keeps getting better and better and better. And the longer that you know the Lord, the better he gets. I don't know if you've experienced that. I hope you have. You know, it's good now. You can walk with God. He's good and you've got a good relationship and things are just sweet. But but it just gets better and better. I'm not saying life is easy. I'm saying that our relationship with God just gets sweeter every day. And think about it, that's the way he works. It starts out good and it ends up great. When man does it, it starts out good and it ends up bad. When Jesus is involved, it starts out good and ends up great. Think about it, it's good right now. But when we get to heaven, it'll just get better. In a billion years, this is how God works. In a billion years, it'll be even better. I don't know how it's possible, but it'll be even better than it is in a million years. ...because that's how God works. He doesn't go from bad or from good to bad. He goes from good to great. And if you'll give him a chance to work in your life... ...here's the problem. A lot of people think, if I give Jesus the controls of my life... ...if I let him have control and I let him take the reins of my life... ...he's going to take what's pretty good right now. It is going to mess it all up and it will get worse in the end. That's never how he works. No, if you will simply submit your life to God... Hand over the reins of your life to God. What you think is good right now will just be even better in the end. He always makes things better. Yes. Don't listen to the ones that say, well, serving God is just a drudgery. It's yeah. just a hard life. Yeah. Following, I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying if you let Jesus take control of your life, it always gets better. I'm not saying he makes things perfect. I'm not saying he will you know, he makes you rich. I'm not saying he takes away all of your problems. But I am saying that in the middle of your problems, the longer you let him work in your life, in the middle of your problems, you can still have sweet peace. You can still know him and trust him and love him because he always makes things better. Here's the point of all this. Listen. Your best option is to submit to Jesus and let him just work in your life. We all face circumstances beyond our control. This circumstance was outside their control. They did not have wine. They couldn't run down to the store and buy more. We all face situations beyond our abilities. And in those moments, you can either take matters into your own hands or you can say, Jesus, I give you complete control over this situation because you're the only one that can turn this into something good. And if I'm the one working this out, it's going to all fall apart. No, Jesus Christ, I need you to be the one working. Listen, and as you do that, what do you find out? Well, what did we find out in the text? That he gives attention to the small things. He cares about your small problems. He cares about the smallest things in your life that you think are not going to be a big deal to anybody else. God cares about those. Jesus cares about those. No, and as you surrender, you discover that he wants to include you in the process of blessing if you'll simply obey. And you'll find out the longer you surrender that the more you realize that life with him working in the middle of it just gets better and better and better. That's what you learn. And look at the end of verse 11. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. See, the fourth thing when we allow Jesus to work, the fourth thing I see here is when Jesus is given the opportunity to work, our faith is grown and he is glorified. Amen. It's a win-win. We grow in faith by seeing him work. And he receives the glory because he's obviously the only one that could have done it. What situation in your life does Jesus want to work in, but you haven't given him the opportunity? Maybe you have a problem. You've got like this wedding did. They ran out of wine. You've got something in your life that you're missing. And you've left Jesus out of the solution. Maybe because you think you can handle it on your own. I'm just here today to tell you, I want to be an encouragement. You can't handle it. But the great I am can. Maybe you think what you're facing is too small for him to care about. And The reason you haven't taken it to him is because there's no way he cares about this. No, that's not true from our text. He was concerned about the small things. And he's concerned about the small things in your life. Or maybe today you're afraid that he'll work things out in a way that you didn't want him to work things out. So you've left him out of the process. So are you saying, so what you're essentially saying is that I trust that my plans for my life are better than God's plans for my life. Do you really believe that? No, trust him and whatever it is that he calls you or asks you to do, just buy buy in all in just say you know whatever it is that he wants i trust that his end is better than mine and i'll accept whatever he asked me to do maybe you haven't made yourself available and if you would just say here i am he would allow you to be used in a way that blesses someone else but you're so self-absorbed you're so consumed with your needs and your problems you're not all that concerned with meeting someone else's needs you're like the but you're, these servants in here they weren't special but they were available and they got to be a part of something big because they were simply available. Maybe your issue is a sin and it's got a hold on your life. Listen, we don't hear enough about sin in churches. Every, every sermon, sermon could be about sin. Sometimes we think sin's not a big deal anymore. No, sin's a big deal. It'll keep you from walking with God. It'll keep you from living a life that pleases God. You realize you'll never be free from your sin unless Jesus has the opportunity to work in your life. He is the only one that can give victory over your sin. You will never beat it on your own. And as this account tells us, the best result is when we give Jesus the opportunity to work. Like only he can. Listen, there's no situation you can handle better than Christ. There's no sin that you can overcome without him. There's no problem you don't need his help with. Here's the action step then. You must be willing to humbly cry out to him and say, I need your help. What did Mary do? They have no wine. What do we need to do? I have no peace. I've been living this life Lord, without you, I have no peace in my life. I don't even know that I'm saved. I don't have a relationship with you. And my life feels like it's falling apart. Jesus, help me. You know, he's never had somebody cry out to him like that, and he says, "Uh, that's, that's not important enough for me. Yeah, that's right. No, if you come to him in humility and you cry out to him for help, he always answers. You say, I don't I have no peace, I need you. My relationship is broken. Jesus Christ, I need you. This sin is overwhelming me. Jesus Christ, I need you, please. I mean, whatever the issue is in your life, if you were to humbly cry out to him, he he responds to our humility with grace. My, my kids and I were this week just talking about a situation. When Olivia was real little, and I'm not going to get into all the details, she was six or seven years old. And she had an issue. And, you know, just a, it wasn't a big deal, but to her little seven-year-old mind, it was a big deal. And I remember it was, a, it was a ladies' meeting night, so I had the kids and I would take them to the library and go hang out with them. And she comes out of this little room and she was having a problem. And she just looked up at me with these big tears in her eyes and says, Daddy, I don't know what to do. And I said, I'm reading. <laughs> Come back in 30 minutes. You think I said that? No way. Because so when my child looked, at, uh, looked up at me with those big tears in her eyes and said, i have an issue. I can't, I don't know what to do about. I don't have any answers. My dad heart responded with, let me help you. And I got down on her level and I looked at her in the eye and said, we can fix this. No big deal. And guess what? We fixed it. You know, that's all God is looking for from you today. They have no why. Father, I don't know what to do. I don't have an answer to this one. Maybe you say, I'm not saved. I know I don't have eternal life and I don't know what to do. You know, God just say, give me a, a minute. No, he comes down to our level. He responds to our humility with grace. And he says, I have the solution. His name is Jesus Christ. Amen. And if you would simply place your trust in him, you can know him today. But listen, this goes for any problem in any realm of life. All he wants from us is humility. He wants us to cry out to him and say, I don't have an answer. And then he says, with grace, I do. And it may not look like you think it's going to look. But if you'll just let me do my work, you'll find out you don't have any problems too small for me. You'll also find out that if you'll just obey, I'll take care of the big stuff. You just do what you can. And that's, that's the big thing. Sometimes we fill the pots up halfway. And, and we leave him out of the process. And, and, and then if we, if we come to him in humility, we ask for his help. Then, then we find out that he can do over and above what we ask him to. He doesn't limit himself to a halfway filled pot. No, he, if we fill it to the brim, he'll give us everything we need. But it all starts, here's the action step. It starts with you coming to the end of yourself and in humility crying out to the great I am. Will you do that this morning? You can be saved. If you're a Christian and you have a sin problem, he can help you with that. If you've got a finance problem, you don't know how to fix it, he can help you with that. And he may not just shower you with Benjamins. But he'll give you the grace. And he'll give you some resources and it'll give you some peace to get through it you may have a relationship problem and you think you can fix it on your own you can't but if anybody can it's Jesus listen there's no issue it's not just wine there's no issue in life that Jesus doesn't have the answer for so let him do what only he can do let him get to work in your life stop leaving him out of the process If anything, this account tells us that Jesus delights in helping his people in their times of need. He delights helping his people in a time of need. We simply need to come in humility and ask him. Let's stand together. Let him fill your life to the brim with the help that he offers He's just looking for someone with faith to let him start working. Have, have you left him out of a situation in your life? Have you, have you uh, kept him at arm's length thinking you can handle it on your own? Listen, no, he wants to hear. Even the small things he wants to hear about. There's no matter too small for him. Maybe you've, maybe you've, you've assumed that this is not a big enough deal for him. No, if it's small or big, take it to God. You say, well, he can't use me. I don't know why he would want to. No, he uses water pots. Uh, Who's to say he can't use you? He uses water pots. You say, well, you know, here's how I think he should work this out. No, he'll often work in ways we never guessed. But I'm telling you this, his ways are superior to ours. And maybe it's just time for you to come to the end of yourself and cry out to him. I need your help. In what area of your life do you need to come to the end of yourself and cry out to Jesus? Father, we need you, and I pray that you bless this time. Give us the courage to respond as we should. Lord, help your people to have no pride, to come to you with humility, and at the end of ourselves, and say, we need you. You are the only one that can answer and fix this. Lord, I pray that you would have your will and way. Give courage to those who may not be saved. Help them to have the courage to step out and help us to show them from God's word how they can know they're on their way to heaven. For the Christian who's at the end of themselves, Lord, help them to come this morning and cry out to the great I am. We need you, we love you. Pray that you'd have your will and way in this service now. In Jesus' name, amen.